Welcome to Vegas Inc. Radio. I'm Dellen Goldberg, host of the show and business editor of Vegas Inc. and the Las Vegas Sun. Over the next half hour, we'll be discussing all things legislature. They're about to convene for the first time in two years, and there's many pending bills that will affect people in Las Vegas and businesses. Joining us first is Dave Schwartz, um, our capital reporter up in Carson City. Welcome, Dave. Hey, thanks, Dellen. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Good. So you're gearing up for the busy season. I am. Uh, you know, it, the legislature meets in less than two weeks now. The lawmakers today were already getting started going over Governor Sandoval's budget. They got kind of this broad overview this morning, and so so they're getting into the nitty gritty of of, of lawmaking. Now, you recently wrote a cover story for Vegas Inc. about lobbyists. Who really holds the key to our fates down here? Is it the lobbyists? Is it the lawmakers? Is it the governor? Great great question. Um, But, you know, I still have to talk to people, so I'm not going to give you a frank answer. (laughs) No, just kidding. Of course I'll give you a frank answer. Um, I I, I don't think there's anyone in the state who would would doubt... um, the influence that lobbyists have in the process. They are hugely influential uh, over what happens, what bills get passed, and and what the state's policy looks like. So so we picked out five lobbyists. um, That'll be part of the discussion, you know, um, and and looked at it. Now, the, the question is why, why do the lobbyists have so much influence over it? Um, is because we have a part-time legislature that meets 120 days. You know, there are house painters and contractors and school teachers and public employees there, and the lobbyists are the paid professionals. Now, another question is, is is this even a bad thing? Um, A lot of lobbyists I know are good people, care about the state and and all of this, uh, so I don't mean to cast dispersions, but, you know, they, they, they do have clients and they do represent interests. Absolutely. And and they're not in it. Maybe they care about the state, there's no doubt. But, you know, as you wrote, they can make some big bucks, um, anywhere from 10000 to $25,000 a month. There's some people who don't make that in a year. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, um, it, it is, you know, they have to feed their families. Absolutely. Um, and we profiled a couple of them, um, some who represent chambers of commerce, others who represent gaming. What makes a good lobbyist? Why do these people have these power clients? Um, are they long-timers? Are they newcomers? You know, it's interesting because right now I'd, I'd say that the lobbying core, like a lot of the rest of the state, is, is in a state of flux. Um, you have term limits, which this year in 2013 are, are for the first time really fully taking effect and has wiped out all the old timers. Um, and so it's going to be interesting to see how some of the longer term, more established lobbyists deal with, with all of the turnover and all the new faces. Um, what makes a good lobbyist, you know, just like anything in our business, being a reporter, uh, you know, in, in some, in business, 
in general, being respected and being trustworthy is very important. Doing your homework is very important. Um, you know, if you get a reputation for lying, you know, that, that could be a real dagger to the heart of your business and, and to a lobbyist reputation. Absolutely, no doubt. And so um, these lobbyists, I mean, this is what they do for a living. The legislature is part-time, and as you mentioned, they're house painters and lawyers and all sorts of other professions. Everybody's picking up and moving to Carson City for the foreseeable future? Yeah, the lawmakers are. Um, the, the lawmakers, to be clear, are the, are, are the ones who are part-time. The lobbyists you know, will lobby local governments, at other times, do public relations and other type of government affairs. Um, but for the lawmakers, they're picking up. They're here moving to Carson City, looking for housing, uh, trying to get settled in and figure out their way around the building. It, it, it's an interesting process. And how do they do that? I mean, if they have their own law firm or a partner somewhere, I can understand how they can leave, but if you're just an average Joe employee, do they get special treatment from employers knowing that they're doing important work at the Capitol? Um, some I think do. I think some employers make special accommodations for for their folks. Some keep on trying to work. Uh, you know, some firms, some law firms, for example, will still... Uh, have the lawmaker doing work on the weekends or after hours. Uh, John Oscar, the speaker last session, um, was trying to still work on the weekends and after hours. As Other a firefighter, right? Yeah, he was, he was a deputy fire chief um, for North Las Vegas. Others, it's very difficult. You know, we had one lawmaker who could have been chair of a very powerful committee, the Ways and Means Committee here in Carson City, resigned after the election, uh, you know, because sources said or that um, her employer, which was the PTA, the national PTA, wouldn't, you know, keep her employed through the session because she was not going to be available during work hours. So, you know, it, it does make for a very diff- difficult and you know, sort of tricky uh, maze for these for the lawmakers to weave through through what through the 120 day legislative session. Absolutely, and with a lot of this new blood, there's not that institutional knowledge and also history, which could be good or bad. Um, talk about that, and I, I guess the lobbyists will play a role in that as well. Yeah, and some lobbyists, you know, it was interesting because some lobbyists I talked to said, hey, this is great. Um, these ideas that have been floated and were dismissed uh, or not accepted are going to get a second chance um, or, or, you know, get a fresh set of eyes on them to reconsider these policies. And other lobbyists I talked to said, oh my gosh, all these old ideas that we've hashed over and went through and picked apart and uh, and vetted already, we're going to have to do it all over again with a bunch of, uh, you know, of, of rookie lawmakers um, who think just because they're elected, they're, you know, greater than God. But um, 
so, you know, there are two sides of that coin, and it'll be interesting to see how it comes out. Some real policy that your listeners might might be interested in, looking at what is taxed. taxed. What, what do you pay a sales tax on? Right now, we pay sales tax on tangible goods like, uh, you know, you buy a piece of jewelry, you pay on that. But, but if you pay to get a ring fixed, which is an intangible good, which is a service, you don't pay a sales tax on that. So that's one of the things that's going to be looked at and going to be vetted. It'll be interesting to see how these new lawmakers handle, you know, which can what can be very dense policy discussion. And to bring it back to the lobbyists, it'll be interesting to see how the lobbyists try to frame the debate and try to protect various clients. Well, great. We'll be watching and waiting for your reporting to let us know how this all plays out. And thank you so much for giving a preview of what's to come. Oh, thanks, Dylan. We're talking to Dave Schwartz, who's our Carson City reporter for the Las Vegas Sun and Vegas Inc. You're listening to Vegas Inc. Radio, part of Waking Up With The Sun. We're here every Monday at 7 a.m. on KUNV 91.5 The Source. Well, now that we got an overview of this session, let's talk about some specific bills that could have impacts here on the local business community. Joining us now is political editor Anjanette Damon. Welcome, Anjanette. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, so you wrote a story for us looking at um, a handful of bills that aren't maybe the most publicized bills but could have important impacts on the business community. They run the gamut from affecting pharmacies to fast food restaurants. Um, let's talk about the one that all of us who enjoy food might might pay attention to the most, the fast food menu postings. Yeah, um, Assemblywoman Lucy Flores has proposed a bill that would require uh, restaurant chains, those I think with 10 or more locations, to post the nutritional values of their food items for sale. I think it would apply mostly to fast food restaurants. And it actually is very similar to federal legislation that's already passed under the Affordable Care Act. Um, she said she wasn't aware that she was duplicating an effort there when she first proposed the bill, but still thinks it's important enough to do on the local level. And I, I guess this is kind of aimed at increasing the consumer's ability to make wise choices. Um, uh, you know, I think we probably all know when we're going to get a get a fast food burger and fries that we're not consuming the healthiest of, of, of foods. But sometimes when you're kind of smacked in the face with, oh, it has that much sodium or that much fat content, you might, might think twice. So public policymakers believe that might be one way of, of addressing the ob- obesity problem. And probably the associated costs, I would imagine. Right, yeah. I mean, obesity leads to a big drag on the healthcare system, and I think that's what um, why it was made part of the Affordable Healthcare Act, which um, you know is, is controversial in many ways, um, but I think seeks to address that that the escalating cost of providing healthcare. And uh, speaking of our health, there's also um, a bill pending or that that will be pending about uh, what kind of cold medicine we can buy and how much and who can buy it. Right, I, you know. We already, pharmacies already have restrictions on cold medicine that contains pseudofedrin, which is one of the precursor ingredients to methamphetamine, which is um, methamphetamine addiction is a huge issue in Nevada. Um, and law enforcement and, and others have been working on ways to uh, restrict access to these ingredients, particularly pseudofedrin. So there's already restrictions. Um, you already have to go and ask a pharmacist for pseudofedrin medicine. Um, but this would, this would, what's proposed would 
improve the tracking system for those who are buying larger quantities of pseudoephedrine um, and would would place some limits on how much can be purchased, not just in one day, but within 30 days. Right now, pharmacists have um, have a paper logbook that they use to write down who buys pseudoephedrine. Um, there's some talk of, of being able to implement a real-time tracking system uh, for pseudoephedrine purchases. Um, this is a really big issue last session. Um, former State Senator Sheila Leslie had proposed legislation that would require a prescription for pseudoephedrine. Uh, that was rejected. Um, and since then, the Attorney General's office has, has put together a task force to study the issue a little bit more. And, and so I think we'll see, see this really uh, debated during the session. And changing the one that I found uh, most interesting was um, technology legislation that Apparently, employers, I don't know about here, but uh, nationally are asking prospective employees for their social media passwords, my Facebook password. Right. I, you know, the, <laughs> that seems to be a really scary proposition to a lot of people. I mean, even if you don't put stuff on your Facebook page that you would necessarily be embarrassed ever would think would um, affect your job prospects to hand over um, a password your Facebook page would probably be unsettling for most people. Um, but there has been some national attention to this issue, some employers um, requesting such information from people who apply for a job. But then, you know, sometimes when you go to a public Facebook site, obviously you can't see everything. Some people keep private what they don't want the world to see on Facebook. A, a password would give a prospective employer a lot of access to what you put on social media sites. And, you know, I think there's some balancing interest here. Businesses would say, you know, they have uh, their own reputations to keep in mind and, and may want to be able to monitor what and place certain policies or restrictions on what employees put on social media sites. Um, but I think there's a growing sense that asking for a password is uh, a little bit more of an invasion of privacy. And as Assemblyman David Bobzine, who's proposing this le- legislation, points out, it, it, it would require uh, Facebook customers to violate their their terms of service with the company. Facebook doesn't let you um, distribute your password and username. So the legislation would be aimed at, at that. And it's been done in other states, I think Maryland and Illinois, if I'm remembering correctly. And so this wouldn't necessarily say you can't hand over your password, uh, just not violate the terms of service. And this would include Twitter and uh, Foursquare and LinkedIn and all these other Right. Yeah, the, legis- the bill isn't actually out yet. So, and even Assemblyman Bob Zoon wasn't sure how they would draft it. Um, but rather than kind of a blanket prohibition on on requiring passwords, it would be um, kind of tailored. Assemblyman Bob Zoon explains it would be tailored to that terms of terms of service agreement. And if that term of service, you know, prohibits distribution of a password, then that would prohibit an employer from asking a job and job prospect. Um, for that information. Well, that'll be an interesting one to follow. Um, the big news recently was a lot of the business community was up in arms over a decision by the Southern Nevada Water Authority to essentially pass a rate hike onto um, small business and medium-sized business as opposed to homeowners or the big boys on the strip, the casino companies. And um, a lot of businesses saw their rates increase and some companies were hit with a triple water bill. It, it tripled. Um, so now Senator Robeson is trying to fix that with a new way to hold the board accountable. 
Yeah, and I think this one will come as a surprise. He's had a few conversations, but I will come as a surprise to someone on um, the Southern Nevada Water Authority. And he's really responding to that, um, what some businesses felt was an outrageous way of of increasing the revenue available to the Water Authority um, to pay for infrastructure, bond service, and, and whatnot. And he's proposing putting the Southern Nevada Water Authority under the purview of the Public Utilities Commission. Um, it's unclear yet um, whether even functionally that would be, um, he would be able to pull that off, uh, but I, I would imagine, and I haven't had a conversation yet with the board members or with um, Pat Mulroy, but I would imagine that would be something that they would have a fair amount of, of interest in, in watching and, and probably not something they'd be too happy about. Well, absolutely, and I was going to say Pat Mulroy is not one to sit back and keep quiet. I mean, she lets the her thoughts be known, so this will be an interesting one to watch, I imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, well, great. Thanks so much, Anjanette. We'll be looking for your coverage to see what happens with these bills as they progress through the legislature. All right. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Thanks. This is Vegas Inc. Radio, part of Waking Up with the Sun. We're here every Monday at 7 a.m. on KUNV 91.5 The Source. Switching gears, we're going to turn our attention from Carson City to Washington, D.C., Joining me now is our Washington reporter, Karin Demersian. Welcome, Karin. Good to be here, Dallin. Great. So you've been busy uh, at the Capitol, and um, you covered the fiscal cliff cliff craziness, and that seems to be averted. And um, you wrote a recent cover story for us about what awaits us next year, this year, in Washington. And you said that people, as we all know, often complain that our leaders don't get much accomplished, but you said that actually might not be the case. Um, What do we have to look forward to? Well, um, you know, in the immediate term, certainly there's, there's, uh, you know, the lingering after effects of the fiscal cliff that we're going to have to deal with. Um, The sequestration issue wasn't permanently resolved. Um, While people don't have to worry about their income tax rates going up, there's still a lot of corporate tax rates that need to be um, worked out, and we're in the season right now where there's no more really trees to hide behind. They've got to address the issue of general tax reform and simplification of the tax code and all the tax loopholes that you heard being batted back and forth and argued about during the campaign season. Well, now they actually have to sit down and put pen to paper and start deciding what they're actually going to turn turn around and change um, in this really kind of, you know, as anybody who does taxes knows, very complicated and over-encumbered system that we've got. Um, so that's the, the real great technical stuff that still has to be done with the numbers. There's also a whole bunch of issues that have been put aside, that were put aside last year, basically, because nobody wanted to take on anything too big and too controversial um, right before an election. But now that the election's over, we've already dove straight into gun control. Um, immigration is the next thing coming down the pike. The president has said more frequently in 2013 than just the end of 2012 that he wants to do um, some sort of energy-based legislation, which is going to involve that whole climate change debate coming back. It's going to involve questions about whether we prioritize renewable energy or, or regular carbon energy. We'll hear a whole big debate about natural gas and fracking, I am sure. Um, and, you know, then... That and that you know that even isn't even it. Then there's more um, peripheral issues too that are going to come up just because there's there's different court cases coming up in Washington and different timelines that are already set in stone with health reform. So there's actually a whole bunch of changes that could be coming about. Um, the question is how many will Congress actually implement that are that are dramatic versus just you know 
pushing the, the ball down the road to the extent that they really have to um, versus the extent that they may you know, want to. Well, let's talk about some of those issues specifically and the impact they might have on business here in Las Vegas. Immigration, for instance, um, that could have a huge resounding impact. You wrote about uh, changes, potential changes to worker visas. What what would that mean? Yeah, well, there's, um, you know, the, uh, the skilled worker visas, the H-1B visas and the unskilled worker visas, the H-2B visas that um, are the temporary worker visas are capped um, at 65000 and 66000 each. Um, in, on an annual basis. So basically, most years there's a run on these visa categories and they're gone, um, you know, within the first few days, weeks. If it's months, then it's a good year. But there's never any left at the end of the year, and that is an indicator that, you know, as much as there's an unemployment crisis in the United States, there's also a shortage of jobs in certain areas where employers are desperate to have workers come in and are not able to fill roles um, because they're not able to get visas to have legal workers in these positions, and that can be a crunch on the economy of a different kind. No, it's not, you know, the, the thing that you always end up talking, hearing about people complain when they um, when they discuss these economic issues is, well, that's a job that an American could do. If an American isn't doing it and it's a job that's undone, it's a product that's not being made. It's a service that's not being available. That means that it's a consumption transaction that's not happening, and that can slow down the economy, too. Um, and then the other thing that is uh, definitely going to be up for discussion if we talk about immigration reform is going to be, you know, workplace verification. There's been a number of high-profile instances where, um, you know, the, the government, which under Obama's administration has actually had more immigration than customs enforcement arrests and, you know, and, and, and those sorts of activities than even during the Bush administration, um, that there's been too many instances where, over you know over the last several years, um, the undocumented immigrants have been targeted, rounded up, um, jailed for deportation, but the employers don't end up really having to pay that big of a fine. So there's going to be a, a shift in focus, I'm sure, if we end up talking about changes that puts a lot of the onus um, back on the employer doing the right thing and and and, and running. Um, running uh, employment credentials, things like social security numbers um, and uh, the forms that you fill out through uh, an E-Verify system or something like that, that would be a centralized um, centralized sort of, you know, uh, database through which you could check to see if the person you're about to hire has credentials to check out. And that is everybody's that's pushing for that and it's become a more bipartisan push for that over the last several years is saying that's safer, frankly, for both the employee and the employer to make sure that the system is operating and nobody's, you know, taking undue advantage of anybody else because there's, there's, there's really a, 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 an opportunity in these cases when they're not regulated and, and you've got a transaction where you've potentially got undocumented immigrants for, you know, for abuse uh, that can border on, you know, human rights abuses too and, and nobody wants to see that happen. Would the e-verification system, would the financial burden be placed on the businesses or would that be a, a government thing? Who would pay for something like that? Do you know? Um, well, actually, uh, there's been, it, it would be a government-based database. Um, so it's based on the Social Security um, based on Social Security information um, that is already, uh, you know, centralized in the in the government. Um, the, the, the complaint that a lot of employers have about it is that um, that, that, that there's there's costs um, associated with when when potentially employees um, information is run through the system. But it does not come back as you know verified or unverified um, right away. 
Um, so the 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 the, the um the, the while the employers aren't charged fees to participate, um, they're basically saying like if we have to hold on to an application because saying no to somebody who for whom we got a it, well it's not completely verified whether this person is legal or not legal yet to work opens we have to not basically push somebody out of the deny somebody's application based on an inconclusive answer, right. and that has costs associated for us. And because the Social Security data upon which the E-Verify system is based has a higher rate than the E-Verify system, I'm sorry, this is getting into the weeds, but Social Security data has about a 4% error rate. That can cause a problem, even though the E-Verify system is very, very good um, and has like a 99.9% accuracy rate um, to produce a lot of these inconclusive reports. And if you can't have somebody on the job, but you also can't say, well, you can't have the job because you then potentially open yourself up to some sort of a discrimination charge down the line, that can be costly to the employer, even though there isn't a direct cost coming from um, the government to the employer. I see, absolutely. And before we run out of time, let's talk energy, because here in Nevada, clean energy, green energy, it has been all the rage in recent years. Do you see the trend continuing? Are we going to see more solar fields coming up or manufacturing plants with help from Washington? Well, that's the big question, right? I mean, so there has been a walk back, if anything, or a change in the pace of the step, I suppose, from Washington when it comes to energy. I mean, under the stimulus bill, and right after Obama was elected, you saw a lot more money coming um, to get to incentivize companies to actually build um, solar energy fields, any sort of renewable energy producing project. This is part of the loan guarantee program, which, you know, the bad part of that was the Solyndra example. Um, and there's one, um, there's one facility in Nevada that also kind of went bad on its loan. But then you've also got things like the facility out in Tonopah that, you know, has kind of made... Uh, and turn that money into something that's going to be functional. Um, it's the, the administration has walked back since the stimulus money expired um, to be uh, getting tax credits for various sorts of renewable energy investment, but not that sort of upfront money that you can be eligible for. The monetized tax credit is what they call it, basically. Um, and so that has, you know, kind of dried up to the point where it doesn't seem like anybody's going to directly push for it um, for an exact uh, resuscitation of it. But the question comes um, for Nevada, especially because Nevada has almost hit its own uh, renewable energy standard. Um, is the government going to do anything to increase, to pay for any sort of you know high-speed transmission lines that could increase the size of the market to whom uh, of customers to whom Nevada companies are trying to sell their renewable energy product to. And if that happens, then there's more natural uh, incentive for more uh, more projects, more renewable energy plants to be getting up and off the ground. Um, it's a question of, you know, will they fund more research and development in ways that can be implemented directly towards, you know, production or manufacturing even of, of renewable energy components in Nevada. And that's something that Nevada would have the opportunity to compete for in a bigger pot. Um, so it's these sorts of, maybe it's not exactly what you've seen before, but what is it going to be once you see it again? And, and will the, what the federal government does just increase the demand across the board. I mean, if the federal government says, you know what, we're going to have a standard that every state has to have 40% of its energy come from renewable sources, you know, by 2050 or something, which is probably not going to happen. But if that sort of thing happened, all of a sudden people 
you know, are, are, are hungry for renewable energy and Nevada can produce it. But Nevada right now, in terms of its self-sustaining economy, kind of needs the federal government to do something to start the, start the, fan the flames of interest, fan the flames of, um, demand, basically, for this, for the, the, for the, uh, industry to continue to be on the upward swing the way it was, um, pretty strongly a few years ago. Well, hopefully Senator Harry Reid, our Senate Majority Leader, will step in and, and push that through. Um, thanks so much, Karin. We're out of time, but we'll, we'll have to have you back to let us know how things are looking when, when they get into the debates and the nitty-gritty. All right, sounds good. Karin Demersion is our Washington reporter for the Las Vegas Sun and Vegas Inc. Thanks to her and Jeanette Damon and David Schwartz for joining us. This is Vegas Inc. Radio, part of Waking Up With The Sun. We're here every Monday at 7 a.m. on KUNV 91.5 The Source. I'm your host, Dellen Goldberg, business editor of Vegas, Inc. Thanks to Steven Zeller, our producer, and the entire KUNV team. And thanks to you for listening. Enjoy your day.